You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Our uh, plan to construct this new kids' building behind us was approved, as you might expect, uh, over Zoom. It was a Zoom meeting with the city, uh, the city zoning administrator, and a great deal of work obviously had preceded uh, this meeting. Plans had been submitted for this building. Um, comments had been made by different departments of the city, adjustments had been made on our part, plans resubmitted, further comments, adjustments had gone through, I think, about three different rounds. So after all of that work, I was expecting a rather lengthy meeting with the zoning administrator, but it only lasted 15 minutes. It was one of those few times I was grateful for Zoom this past year. The administrator noted that all of the city departments had approved our plans, He agreed with their assessment, and then he simply said, your conditional use permit is approved. I was, yeah, it was amazing. I was uh, sitting in my home office, and I remember looking around to nobody and thinking, that's it? We're done? That's great. So now, a little over a year later, we are two weeks away from moving into this new building. So as we prepare to occupy this this building, what we are doing leading up to that time is we are considering a set of conditions that are more important than the ones established by the city in our conditional use permit. It turns out God has some conditions of his own when it comes to his church. And these conditions are found in seven letters that are dictated from Jesus to seven first century churches. And they're recorded in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. And if we don't stick to God's conditions, he won't padlock the doors on a particular Sunday. He will simply pull back from what we're doing and everything we do here, and he will withdraw his hand of blessing. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the world is full of churches where the hand of God used to be. Buildings that are far more expensive and far more amazing than anything we'll ever build here. So, so far we've looked at two conditions that Jesus has on his church. The first and most obvious is a commitment to him, a commitment to Jesus Christ. The deed on this property recorded in the county of Orange is the name of this church, Seabreeze Church. But actually, Jesus is the owner of this place. He is the head of the church. And if our commitment to him waffles, then one of the key conditions around his hand of blessing on a church is removed. The second commitment we looked at last Sunday was a love for God and a love for each other, for people. If our love grows cold, the power of God will leave this place, no matter how impressive this property might look from the outside. Today we turn our attention to the third condition, a commitment to the truth. Commitment to live our lives by the truth of God's word recorded in the pages of the Bible. This world is also full of churches and Christian institutions that started with a very strong commitment to Jesus Christ and a very strong commitment to the Bible, to his word. But they are now places dedicated, really, to the denial and the refutation of the Bible. Let me read an example of a founding mission statement for a well-known university. Here's their founding mission statement. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. The name of this university? Harvard. Harvard University. This was their founding mission statement. This was the original seal of Harvard. In the middle, these are Latin words, so in the middle, 
veritas, that's Latin for truth. And then you notice the three words around it, et, Christo, ecclesiae. That's Latin for, for Christ and the church. That's their original seal. They were founded for Christ and the church. This is where Harvard started, but that's not where they are right now. This is the, the new seal for Harvard. It was adopted several decades ago. They got rid of, of course, for Christ and the church. That no longer fits who they are. They did stick with Veritas. They did stick with truth. Now, this year, you may have heard it, made the news, they, Harvard hired an atheist to be their lead chaplain. And nobody is surprised, really. When I read that, I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, shocking at one level, but not that surprising. In fact, it's interesting, you can look at the history, about 100 years after Harvard started, a number of the leadership of Harvard became concerned about the drift that was already occurring in that prestigious university. So they decided they were going to start another university that would really stay committed to Jesus Christ and the Word. The name of that university? Yale. It's gone the same direction. You can look at the history of Yale if you want to look that up. So the question then is, we're not necessarily any better than the individuals that started those institutions hundreds of years ago. How does a church or institution start out so committed to the truth of God's Word and then end up so opposed to it? Well, the circumstances are always different, but every church, every Christian institution, for the most part, follows a very similar path. And it's called the path of Balaam, or the teaching of Balaam, that's going to be mentioned in the letter that we read this morning. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warned the church in Pergamum that they were walking on this path. They were adopting the teaching of Balaam. And they needed to get off of this Balaam path and get back on track and recommit themselves to the truth of God's word. So let's read the warning to this church found in the letter recorded in Revelation 2, verses 12 through 14. To the angel of the church Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. If you've read much of the New Testament, you know this is a reference to the Bible, the double-edged sword, the truth of God goes on to say, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching, and here it is, of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, Pergamum, like the other seven cities that these seven letters were written to, is in a city that is now in modern-day Turkey. And that city was known for its immorality, which is why it's described here as the city where Satan has its throne. I've often wondered, I wonder where that city is now. I've got a guess, but I don't know. But as a church existing in evil central, they were under tremendous moral pressure. Amazingly, they had not responded to this pressure by renouncing their faith in Jesus Christ. Even when Antipas, who was one of them, was executed for his faith in Christ, they hadn't caved. That's the good news. The bad news is they were starting to waffle. They were starting to struggle with their commitment to some parts of God's word. 
they were adopting the teaching of Balaam. Just like Balaam had done 1,400 years earlier, they were beginning to walk down this path. This church was following the well-worn path away from a commitment to God's work. Like those before them and those after them, they did not renounce their faith in Christ. They did not renounce their commitment to God's work. Hardly ever does a church or a Christian institution just suddenly publicly renounce their commitment to Jesus and his work. They do that slowly, quietly, before it ever becomes public. It's always a much more of a meandering path away from the truth of God's word, away from the Bible. So this is the path that Balaam took that now bears his name. Balaam's story is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. Balaam lived around 1450 B.C., and he was a man of God who was given the power from God to bless and to curse. In other words, whatever he said by the way of blessing actually occurred. When he blessed someone or something, things went really well. And conversely, whenever he pronounced a curse, boy, things just started unraveling to whatever he cursed. Balaam, like all who have followed him, took a three-step path away from God and the truth of what God says. So let's look at these steps. Step number one is we encounter a no in the Bible that we don't like. We encounter a no that we don't like. God's word says no about something, and we don't agree. We don't like it. That's what happened to Balaam. The story of Balaam is about the interaction really between two men. Unfortunately, they sound almost identical, so we'll put them up there. Balaam, the man of God, and Balak is the second character in this. He's the king of Moab, so don't get them confused. Balaam is the main character. Balak is the king of the nation of Moab. The event takes place shortly after God, shortly after God had rescued the Jewish people from captivity in Egypt. Now, all some two, two million of them were on their way to the promised land. And two million people don't just make their way through a country without it causing some commotion. And so the, the different kingdoms they had marched through up to this point, they had intended no one harm, but a lot of times armies would rise up and oppose them. And whenever that happened, it didn't go well for the opposing army. God granted victory for the people of Israel. So Balak had heard how Israel had defeated the armies, first of all, of Pharaoh, and now the armies of the other kingdoms that had stood in their way. And Balak was terrified the closer and closer they got to his kingdom, to Moab. So Balak had heard of Balaam's power to curse. So he sent some envoys to Balaam with a request to have Balaam curse the people of Israel as they approached his land. Here's what we read in Numbers 22, verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. So notice the elders didn't just bring a request. They brought money to pay for the request. Now, we don't know how large this fee for divination was, but it becomes clear as the story moves on that it was enough to seriously get Balaam's attention. But Balaam's in a pickle at this point. He realizes that he doesn't just have some magical blessing and cursing power. He realizes that God's the only one that can really bless, and God's the only one that can really curse. And so he needs to check in with God to see if God will give him permission to curse these people. 
So he did just that. We read this in verses 12 through 13 of Numbers 22. But God said to Balaam, after he requested this, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up, said to, the ba to Balak's princes, go back to your own country, for the Lord has said no. He's refused to let me go with you. Sounds like the end of the story, but it's just getting started. God said no to this big payday, and Balaam complied. But it becomes pretty apparent early on he didn't like it. He didn't like the no. And the same kind of thing happens to us today. There are parts of the Bible that almost everybody likes. You know, where Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I don't know of anybody that says, that's a bad idea. Everybody's like, yeah, that's great. Go, Jesus. But then there are other parts of the Bible that we don't like, you don't like. These are the parts where, often like Balaam, God has said no to something. Either we don't understand why he said no to, or it's about something we really want. And we don't like being told no. None of us ever do. Whether we're two or whether we're 62, nobody likes being told no. And it's especially hard when the no is about something that we really want. So at first, we do what Balaam did. Usually we do this. We submit to God's word. We say, okay, and we do what he says. And here's the key on the outside, not on the inside. On the inside, a war has begun. It's the ongoing war between what we want and what God says. So what happens as this war takes off? Well, let's look at what happened with Balaam because it's a path that we walk. Verses 15 through 17. We read this, then Balaam's, or Balak, rather, this is the king of Moab, sent other princes more numerous and more distinguished than the first. So the entourage is bumped up. It's more impressive. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me. In other words, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Because why? I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. This is the kind of thing, not exactly, but this type of thing is often what happens whenever we obey God's word, but in our heart, we don't like it. We don't want to. We're struggling on the inside. What happens often is the stakes that are attached to that no go up. Either the cost of doing what God says goes up or the reward of ignoring what God says goes up or both. So it costs us more to keep saying no. So what do we do? We start wondering, is, is this really a no? We start looking for loopholes. We, we start asking for second opinions. Now here's the funny thing about us. No is not a subtle word, right? No is the first word we've all learned. We know what no means. No means no. It's not subtle. It's a clear word. So when God says no to Balaam, it's pretty clear, just like it is to us. But if you don't like the no, then the next thing we try to do is we try to make that no as fuzzy as possible. And that's what Balaam did. 
verses 18 through 19, the very next verses. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gives me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Wow, he's committed to what God says here. It's amazing. Now here's the problem. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. What else? What else could you say? You tell your child no, and they say, well, what do you mean by no? Like, no? I mean, you, you, there's really no, you know, there's not a way to expand on that. And so Balaam is clearly, he knows what God has said. He's like, well, he's made it fuzzy. What else could God say to be more clear? Nothing. But the problem for Balaam was not a lack of clarity. It was that he didn't want to hear the no. It was desire. That was the problem. He wanted what God had said no to. He wanted the money in this case. He really didn't want to obey God. Now, here's the, the fix he was in. Having spent some part of his life seeing what happens when people say they defy God and, and a curse has fallen on them and when they obey God and a blessing falls on them, Balak knows, or Balaam knows firsthand, you don't want to mess with this. So he, he doesn't want to technically disobey God, but he wants to figure out a way to get the money. He wanted to figure out a way to get around the no. And whenever any of us doesn't want to obey God, even though we technically are, it's not long before we figure out a way to turn a no from God into a yes from God. Now, what can happen at this point on this first step when we realize God has said no and I'm not happy about it? That happens to all of us. At this point, we have a choice. We can either confess our divided heart to God, be honest with him about, I don't like this, but then surrender ourselves to his no, trusting that it will be for our long-term good, even if it's costing us in the short term. That's one option. The other option is we can move on to step two. Step two is this. We walk on a reckless path. This is what Balaam did. In other words, we do what is right. We keep our foot on the path that is right, but our eyes and our hearts are rubbernecking it all over the place. We desire what is wrong. So Balaam does check back in with God, as he said, to see what else God might say. And much to his surprise, and I think everyone reading this story, to all of our surprise, God says that Balaam can, in fact, go back with these men for a face-to-face -face meeting with the king. Why would God say, okay, still no, but you can go back for a meeting with these guys? Well, God honors our freedom. He wants us to say yes because we want to say yes. And if we're saying no and we don't want to, he wants to deal with that. He wants us to deal with that. So God is setting up a last chance moment of warning for Balaam. The very next morning, Balaam saddles up his donkey. And he heads out for the capital city of Moab for this meeting with the king, Balak. But while he's en route, his donkey starts acting up and he won't move. The donkey stops, which is not unusual for donkeys. But Balaam starts beating this donkey, and the donkey will not budge. 
Finally, the donkey turns to him and talks. An indication that something's going on here beyond natural. And he tells Balaam that there's an angel with a flaming sword that is blocking the road, and that's why the donkey's not moving. Now, when a donkey can see more than you can, it's a good indication that you're not operating with a lot of wisdom at this point. But this is an example of how blinding our desire can be. When we want something, we see the future as clearly, less clearly than a donkey does sometimes. So God opens up Balaam's eyes, and he sees what the donkey saw first. He sees this angel. And the angel delivers God's warning to Balaam. And here's what the warning is, verse 32 of Numbers 22. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. What's a reckless path? Well, we do more driving than donkey riding, so let me ask it this way. What causes you to be a reckless driver? You're distracted. It's usually caused by distraction. Now, your car's on the road, but your eyes aren't. You're texting, you're looking at your phone, checking an app, looking off to the side of the road. As a result, your car is weaving in and out of the lane, maybe onto the shoulder. And if you don't get your eyes back on the road, you're going to end up in a ditch or worse, wrapped around a tree. This is what Balaam was doing. God had said no, so Balaam had said no. But his eyes were on the money. You see, the path where we walk is the decisions that we actually make. It's where our footsteps fall. The challenge for all of us is that our desires don't have to be in line with our decisions. We can be looking for something that we don't do right now. Our desires, what we want, is where we look. So our decisions is where we go. That's our path. Our desires is where we look. And the way God's designed us is eventually our bodies will go where our eyes are looking. That's what Balaam was doing that was so reckless. He was saying no, but his eyes were looking really hard at yes. You see, God has established paths for us to walk on. They are called his ways. And these paths, like every path that exists, exist because it's the best way to get to a desired destination. So let's say you want to go to Phoenix. You can either go off-road through the Mojave Desert, Desert, or you can take Interstate 10. I highly recommend Interstate 10. <laughs> it's the same thing with God's paths. If you want joy, if that's your destination, not Phoenix, but joy in life, you can go about it two different ways. You can wander around in the desert of joy in this world, searching for it, or you can take the paths that God has marked that lead to joy. But here's the catch with paths, with roads. They all have borders. They've got barriers. And we don't like borders. A border is a no. We don't like no's. 
For example, everyone knows the border that God has placed on sexual activity. Even people that don't read the Bible, they know what the Bible says about this. The border is marriage between a man and a woman. Beyond that, God says, no. We don't need a second opinion. He just says no. We don't like no. So we let our eyes wander, and we become reckless. Eventually, we find ourselves in the sadness ditch, wondering how we got there and why the suicide rates are going up and why depression rates are rising. We, we don't know. We're, we're confused. So God used the donkey to get Balaam to stop. And he sent an angel to give him a reckless driving warning. And then the angel steps out of the path. And Balaam has a choice to make. Keep going right where that angel was or turn around. See, at this point, Balaam could have gotten his eyes back on God's path and asked for God's help, but he didn't. I mean, just think of this. Thank you, angel with flaming sword. I'm going to keep going. Wow. He really wanted the money. And so he went to step three. Step three, we justify a yes, where God has said no. So Balaam gets back on his donkey, and he continues to the capital city of Moab. Why? I think he still wants the money, right? I can't think of any other reason why you'd ignore a talking donkey and an angel with a flaming sword. He wants the money. So his heart was still clearly in the weeds. But here's the key point. His feet weren't yet. He hadn't disobeyed God yet. It wasn't wrong to hear the king out. God said he could. It wasn't wrong to go eat some of the king's food. It wasn't wrong to sleep in the palace. God had said he could do those things. What the angel had said is that it's reckless to do that. You're going to end up in the ditch if you do this. God hadn't said no. And so... Balaam kept his feet technically on the right path, but his heart was way off at this point. So when he arrives, the king ups the offer for a third time. You can read about it. He offers up to half of his kingdom. Then he takes Balaam to a palace. Not a palace, actually. It was a, a hill, a hillside overlooking Israel, so that Balaam could pronounce the curse and get half of his kingdom. The king clearly thought he could tell where Balaam was. He knew that he wanted this. I mean, why else would the guy keep coming back and saying, tell me more about the money? He knew that he had him. But to everyone's surprise, and if you read this story, this is a big, oh, I didn't expect that moment. Instead, Balaam's brought up to this hill overlooking the two million people in camp in tents on the desert floor. And instead of pronouncing the curse, he actually pronounces a blessing on these people. Wow. Nobody saw that coming. And you have to look at that and say, man, Balaam's got some incredible willpower. And so the king decides, okay, I need to take him to a different place. And so he takes him to a different outlook area. And asks him to curse again. And this time, Balaam does the same thing. He pronounces a blessing. 
And he does this four times until the king is finally so mad, he says, get out of my sight. And he sends Balaam away. And you, at this point, you think, man, Balaam's a better person than I am. I, I, I could not have hung in there that long and obeyed God while looking that hard at the money. But it looks like he did. Is this the end of the story? It looks like the end of the story. And you're thinking, man, this guy's amazing. Turns out this is not the end of the story. In the next chapter, it seems like an unrelated event. No mention of Balaam. But in the next chapter of Numbers, Numbers 25, we read about a, a scene where the beautiful women of Moab get dressed up and they walk through Israel's tent city and they end up seducing a bunch of the men to leave their families and have an affair with them. And as a result of that, God's anger is kindled and a plague breaks out and a lot of people die. And it appears to be an unrelated event, but it isn't. Several chapters later in Numbers. You can read about it in Numbers 31, 16. Moses himself identifies Balaam as the mastermind behind this plan. It turns out what Balaam had done, and you can just see how hard our mind works when we want something. Balaam, he would have been a great lawyer, being technical about all this. Uh, I'm not actually, I've, I've actually said blessings. I'm not going to curse because I know what happens when you defy God. But he went to the king and he said, I have an idea, and my idea is this. I can't help but notice how many beautiful women are around here. And I'm a man, you're a man, you know how men can be. So I think if you prance these women through this tent city, a bunch of the men are going to leave their wives and leave their families for these beautiful women. These women will seduce some number of men. Some will resist, but there'll be a bunch that will go for it. And I know what God thinks about men who leave their families for this. And what will happen is, I won't have to curse anyone because God will bring a curse down on them. So what he had done is he had come up with a way to bring about the effect where he didn't actually have to technically say the words. But the result is, you know, God doesn't say, ooh, that's brilliant. <laughs> no, God knows what's going on. And it turns out that when the army of Moab rises up to attack the army of Israel, the army of Israel prevails, and Balaam is killed in the confrontation. Because, as it says, almost it's a side note, he was with them. He had become an advisor to the king and was with them. And this is a warning to all of us. Eventually, if we struggle with God's no long enough, we will figure out a way to justify a yes. What we'll do is we'll get out our giant, invisible, scripture-twisting wrench. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's this invisible wrench that you can put on a verse in the Bible that clearly says one thing, 
and you lock that wrench on there, and you think, and you think, and you pull, and you twist, and eventually you can get that verse to say something over here. Now, it takes a lot of thinking. It takes a lot of education to be able to turn a no into a yes, but this is the way our minds work when we want something. We end up turning God's no's into a yes. The truth about us is we are not as logical as we'd like to think that we are. We don't think first and then start moving in the direction that that logic dictates. What we do is we desire first. We want something first. And then we do our thinking to justify it. Sometimes it just takes five minutes. Sometimes it takes five years. But eventually, we'll get that invisible scripture, Christopher Wench, and we'll get that verse turned in a whole different direction than anyone who reads it for the first time would ever take it to mean. God said no to Balaam. You can't much get much clearer than that. But Balaam kept thinking and thinking and thinking about how to get what he wanted anyways. And eventually, ding, he found a loophole. He figured a way out. It's just amazing what our minds can come up with to justify what we want. You know, I read the story of Balaam, and I don't think, man, what's wrong with that guy? It sends chills down my, spines because I, my spine because it's like, oh, I know what's wrong with that guy because I've got the same heart. I encounter something in the Bible, it's like, I don't like that. And I start, rather than tr trying to clearly understand, I try to see if I can angle it off some way. It's amazing what our minds can justify. In the past 50 years, and this is no surprise to anyone, our culture has done a great deal of mental meandering on sexual boundaries. What God said is clear. But we've managed how, as a culture to take a bunch of no's and turn them into yeses. And for us as a church, if we walk the path of Balaam, and like the church at Pergamum, we start saying yes to what God has said no to, we will join the culture. And nothing obvious will change in the short term. Well, something will. What will happen in the short term is things will get easier for us. The mounting pressure that the culture is putting on us to be on the right side of history will be removed. But what will happen at that point, if we ever do that, is Jesus will silently walk away. May that never happen here. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this warning. We understand why this church struggled. They were trying to be a church in the city where Satan has his throne. I don't know where that is now. I don't think it's here but it seems like it's a lot of places. And the pressure is just mounting, just like it was on Balaam. So Father, we, we need your help to trust your no. We know that you say no, just like we said no to our kids, not because we're wanting to mess with their lives and make them miserable, but because we're trying to protect them. We're trying to bring blessing to them. 
But we are so arrogant, we just think we know better. So I pray in the middle of just the mounting pressure that is true of our world right now in so many areas, I pray that you'd help us to stick with what you've said in your word because they are your words. They're not just a cultural document that is dated and needs to be discarded or at least twisted. They are your actual words. Help us to submit to your notes. And may we be a light to those who find themselves in the sadness ditch and are ready to consider what you say. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.